You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor George Willis, which is from the sermon series, The Bible Tells Me So. For more information, please visit our website at www.creekside.org. All right, uh, real quick before we get into it, uh, welcome to Creekside. I want to give take just uh, take a moment and give God some praise. I'll tell you why. Uh, because we had around 198 kids all up and through this place on Friday night for our first game on. And Pastor Christina, Pastor Christina uh, and her team did an amazing job uh, hosting that, facilitating that, and uh, we're pumped because we have another one coming up later on this year. Uh, I want to welcome you to week five in 40 days in the Word. We're going to get right into it. As you know, we've been learning how to study the Bible for ourselves. Last week I mentioned that regardless of what kind of study you do, whether it's a, a word study, a character study, a topical study, a book background study, a biological study, it, it, whatever chapter study, you always come back to these four questions, four main questions, four main categories of questions. Are you ready? It says, the first one is this observation. That's where you write down or ask the question, what does it say? What does this passage or verse say? Then you go to interpretation. That's where you ask the question, what does it mean? And we learned uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Bible means what it means, right? The Bible means what it means, and we're going to talk about that more today. Then you go to correlation, and you ask, what does it say in other verses in the Bible that help explain this verse that I'm reading right now? That's correlation. How does it correlate? And then the fourth step in Bible study is application. That is, what am I going to do about what I just read? What am I going to do about it? Because it isn't Bible study until you do something about it. The Bible wasn't given to increase our knowledge, to give us big spiritual heads. The Bible was given to change our lives. Bible study is what am I going to do about it? How is it going to change me? That is application. Today we're going to look at the two, interpretation and correlation, and ask how do I know and understand the meaning of a text. Now, as an example for us today, uh, we're going to look into a very familiar yet powerful, very intimate passage by Jesus. And uh, this, it's where he gets personal, and there's so much power packed into it. John 15. If you didn't bring your Bibles, that's okay. We, we gave you the passage on the back of your note sheet, which you'll have in your program or uh, bulletin, whatever we call that. Um, we have it. It's not, it, I don't know if we have it on the screens, but it's on that piece of paper for you to follow along. And we're going to read together John 15, and we're going to dig in and learn how to get the meaning, not just the meaning, but the correct meaning of a particular passage. So have you ever heard a, another Christian say when you know, something like this, uh, it may go, well, hey, listen, I know what you're saying, but, you know, uh, God doesn't expect us to be successful. He just expects me to be faithful. Have you ever heard that? All God really wants me to be is faithful. That sounds good, but it's not completely true. It's only like half true. 
I know God does want us to be faithful. He does. But the Bible teaches us that not only does God expect you to be faithful in life, he also expects you to be fruitful in this life. Fruitfulness or bearing fruit is one of the major themes of the New Testament. God says, he's saying this to us, I've made an investment in you. I've invested in you. I created you. I made you. I put my very spirit within you. I have gifted you. And I expect a return on my investment. I want you to bear fruit. So it's not true that God just wants us to be faithful. God also wants us to be fruitful. One of the key passages on this very thing is one that we're going to look at today, John 15. Let me read it to you. Jesus is talking and he says this, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. Now you have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. What's it say here? Remain. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Now this word remain, if you want to underline, you can underline those remain. This word remain means to be connected, continually connected, like being connected to a vine. Now it goes on to say, for a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you what, church? Remain or stay connected in me. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce what? Say it with me. Much fruit. Underline much fruit. God wants you to live a very fruitful life. Not just a little fruit. He wants you to have or bear much fruit in your life. It goes on to say, for apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say that, you know, apart from me, you can do a little bit, whatever you feel like, whatever feels good. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. Now, you can underline that because that's a pretty amazing promise. It says, when you produce, again, much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandment and remain in His love. I have told you these things. And what he's saying is, I have told you all of these things that I've just talked about so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. He says, I want you to be joyful from what I've told you. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you, sl you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love 
each other. Friends, those 17 verses, you know, have more spiritual insight, more power-packed truths than anyone can possibly teach in, uh, let alone three or four months, let alone 40 or so minutes. But I'm going to try. 40 minutes or less. (laughs) I'm going to try and limit this one. No promises. No promises. Our primary focus today, our primary focus today is a concept of fruit. 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 You can write that in big bold letters on your note. Today we're talking about fruit. I also want to show you how a verse can be misinterpreted because it happens all the time. Because this tends to be, verse 6, this passage, tends to be one of those verses that can badly be or be badly misinterpreted. If you ignore the rules of interpretation, what happens is we're going to get it wrong. Has anyone ever heard someone say, another Christian say, listen, when you, when you talk about the Bible to them, they go, hey, listen, bro, that's just your interpretation. You know, I have my interpretation, and, you know, what they're saying is, you know, this interpretation or, you know, that interpretation, somebody can, else can have an interpretation, and all of our different interpretations are valid ones, right? No. That's wrong. It's not true. The Bible, each verse in the Bible, believe it or not, has one and only one meaning. We're going to dig into this, dig into this a little bit. It only has one meaning, but it has multiple applications. Multiple applications, but it only has one interpretation. Many applications, for example, depending on whether you're a man or you're a woman or you're young or you're old or you're married or you're single or you live in the 21st century or you lived back then, which 100% of you have not. It has many different applications. So it's not a matter of, hey, that's just your interpretation of it. That's just your interpretation. There are correct ways to interpret the Bible, and there are incorrect ways to interpret the Bible. And if you know the rules of interpretation, you can go off, or if you don't know the rules of interpretation, you can go off and end up finding yourself in some kind of cult based on what you think it means. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say when you ignore the rules of interpretation. And you take things out of context. What God's saying out of context. So we're going to learn how to interpret the verse correctly so that you will know what you read. You will know what it really means. Now, one of the problems, like I said, with verse 6, one of the problems when you first read it, it sounds kind of frightening. Verse verse 6 says, Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. Now, you may have heard this passage or this verse communicated before, and you may have heard it misinterpreted. What they usually say is something like this, if you don't remain in me, you're going to be thrown away. Branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. And they say, you know, here's what this verse means. If you don't bear fruit, and by the way, bearing fruit's a good thing. You know, bearing fruit is a good thing. You know, the fruit of another Christian, they'll say, is a Christian, which, okay, I get that. The fruit of an apple tree, right, is an apple. You know, uh, the fruit of a pear is another pear. So, you know, to say, you know, to somebody, the fruit of a Christian is another Christian, okay, that's good. 
But here, they'll take this verse and then they will proceed to say, or continue to say, what this verse means is the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. And if you don't bring people to Christ, God is going to throw you away. And you're going to lose your salvation and you're going to burn in hell for eternity. You're going to burn in the fire of hell. Is, is, is that what that verse means? No, that's a misinterpretation. And it totally ignores the context and the rules of interpretation of Scripture. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. Here's the first principle. If you're taking notes, write this down. Consider, we have to consider the historical context. Historical context. What I mean by that is you ask this question. Who is this being spoken to and why? Who is being spoken to and why are they being told this? Because until you know who, what, when, where, and why, you don't know what that verse means. Long before you ever ask, what does this verse mean? You need to ask the question, what did it mean to them? Why did God say it to them? And why was he speaking it to them back then? We call that the original meaning of a text. And you say, you know, you, you ask the question, who is God talking to? Who's being spoken to? Why is he saying it? And when is it being said? John chapter 15 is a passage all about fruit bearing. It's about fruit bearing. Right in the middle of a four chapter conversation that's all said on the same night in the same place to the same group of people. It was said the night Jesus was betrayed, arrested and taken and to be whipped and beaten before he was crucified. This is the last conversation Jesus had before he went to the cross. Jesus has spent, you know, three and a half years with 12 disciples, men that he handpicked and lived with and served with and ate with and slept with and prayed with and ministered with for three and a half years, training them to take on the ministry after he dies, resurrects, and eventually goes back to heaven. And what, what we see Jesus doing is he wants to spend time with these men. He wants to hang out with these men and spend time with them. He takes him to a private place for a private conversation. Now, he's not talking to a crowd. He's not, you know, talking to, you know, he's not talking in the synagogue or the church or a large group. He's really saying this to his most trusted followers. Men, people, he loves deeply. And in John chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16, we have one extended conversation that all happens on the same night to the same guys. And it culminates in John chapter 17 where Jesus, is, Jesus prays for them and he prays for us as well. And then he's arrested and he's taken to be crucified. So what we need to do to fully understand John chapter 15 is we need to, uh, we got to go back to chapter 13 to fully understand it. Because to understand the context means you look at verses before and you look at verses after a particular passage. Are you with me so far? Okay, 
You're doing so good. So here's what I want to do. We're going to do just that. We're going to look at a passage a little before and a little after, right up to the point of John chapter 15, our current conversation. He said, so here we see Jesus. He's invested three and a half years in these disciples. He loves them. And this really is his farewell conversation, his final instructions before he goes to heaven. When, When somebody is saying their last words, as you know, right? When you hear someone say their last words, what do we do? We listen because we know it's important. We don't tune out, we tune in. What Jesus is going to talk about in this conversation is the most important thing that he wants not only them, but us to understand as well. He is now summarizing his ministry in these four chapters. Jesus takes him to the upper room and And there they observe Passover, which becomes the Lord's Supper, which becomes what we know today as communion, which we practice today. And in that intimate relationship with those that he loves deeply, he starts this conversation in chapter 13, verse 1. And this is not on your paper, but it's in the big Bible in the sky. So chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. In other words, he knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to die on the cross. And he loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. So what he's going to say in chapter 13, 14, and 15 and 16 is going to show the full extent of God's love for them and not just for them, for us. Verse 2, it was a time for supper. This is in the upper room. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got it from the table, Jesus did, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. Now, I don't know about you, but this is an incredibly intimate scene. It says Jesus knows who he is, and so he's going to perform an act of service to the disciples that's going to blow their mind. Side note, I want to tell you that it's really difficult. It's really difficult to serve people until you know who you really are. The number one thing that keeps you from serving people is your own insecurity. And when you know who you are, God will reveal what you do. See, Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knew who he was. He's God. So it says he was able to take off his outer garment and he does this like servant act of washing stinky, nasty feet. See, in those days, everybody wore sandals without socks, dads. Everybody wore sandals so your feet got dirty, nasty because what they had to walk through sometimes. It was a common custom that when you went to somebody's house for dinner, the first thing you did was you had your feet washed. But it was always done by not the homeowner, but the servant. And Jesus does the absolute unexpected, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, 
the Prince of Peace, the creator of the universe, what's he do? He strips down. He wraps a towel around himself and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And they cannot believe what's going on. I'm giving you context here. He's serving them like a, like a house servant. And it says next in verse 6, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, no way, you're not doing this. Jesus replied, listen, you don't understand now, Peter. You don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. And a side truth, you may not understand what Jesus is doing in your life right now, but you'll understand later. Take that as an encouragement. Because it's only usually in retrospect that we can look back and go, oh, now I see what God was doing through that circumstance. Peter goes on to say, no, no way. You'll never wash my feet, which is a a contradiction if you don't see it. Because you can't say no and call him Lord in the same sentence. Peter says, no. He protested, you'll never wash my feet. It's not going to happen, Lord. You're the Lord. No. You get that? You're Lord. No. We all do that. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And then Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands, wash my head, Lord. Wash, not, not just my feet, wash my entire body. What he's saying is, and this is why I love that guy, no, Lord, you're my Lord, but I'm telling you no. But then he goes, if this is the way I get in, if this is part of it, get out the, the, the garden hose and the scrub brush and go to town. Clean me from head to toe. The whole body, everything. That's why I dig Peter. Peter's like a, an all or nothing guy. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for his feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. See, they had Passover together and Judas is still in the room. He's part of the 12. Jesus goes, you're clean, but not all of you. Because he knows Judas is still there. And one of one, uh, one was going to betray them. Later, Jesus said to Judas, whatever you got to do, you know, go do it. And Judas leaves. And later over in chapter 15, we read, we read er, the passage we read earlier. He says, now you're clean. Why did he say that? Because Judas wasn't with them anymore. Here's the 11 ride-or-die dudes who stuck with him through thick or thin. And in verse 13, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I am doing? You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash others' feet, each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Friends, he's given us a beautiful picture, an intimate picture of serving one another, of serving each other. And this is the first lesson he's given to the people closest to him before he dies. Why is he doing this? Because Jesus knew once he dies, they're going to be devastated. They're going to be in grief. 
They're, it's going to wreck them. They're going to be in shock. They're going to be saying things like, this wasn't the way that this was supposed to happen. They can't believe it, and they're going to be confused. He goes, guys, you're, gonna, you're going to need to love each other, and you're going to need to serve one another. So I'm giving you this example to help you to hang in there together. And for the rest of the chapter 13, Jesus emphasizes the importance of loving each other, loving one another. Because he says you're getting ready to go through some tough times. And I want you to love one another and I want you to serve one another. Then we come to chapter 14. Jesus makes a number of promises. In this same conversation, because remember, it's a one long conversation over those four chapters. They're still in the upper room. He's still talking to just the 11 guys because, remember, Judas has already left. He's now there going, uh, now, you know, they're, they're, he knows that they're going to go through some stuff. So he gives them some promises to encourage them. He wants to encourage them. And he gives them four promises specifically encourage them. The first 11 verses, he says, and I'm going to summarize these. He says, you guys, don't worry. Don't worry because I'm going to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you so you don't have to worry. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, I'm going to rise again. But then I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place just for you. So don't worry. It's all working out. Then he says in verses 12 through 14, he says, And by the way, you don't need to worry because you can talk to me anytime in prayer. I may not physically be here, but you can ask me anything in my name, and guess what? I will do it so that my Father will be glorified in the Son. So don't worry because you can talk to me still, even though I'm not physically here. And then in the next few verses, verses 15 through 25, he says, don't worry because I'm going to, not only am I going to prepare a place for you, not only can you talk to me in prayer, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to live within you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you to be with you. He will be your strength. He will be your comforter. He will be your guide. He will be your counselor. He will be your illuminator. So don't worry, guys. I got you covered. And then in verses 27 through 30, he says, don't worry because I'm going to give you the gift of peace. I'm going to give you this peace that you you can't comprehend. He said, it's a peace that the world doesn't give. In the world, you're going to have trouble. That's a promise. You can count on that. But listen, you're going to have problems, but I'm going to give you peace, and my peace will overcome this world. Four things. So I'm going to give you, you know, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You can talk to me anytime. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you, and I'm going to give you the gift of peace so that no matter what goes on, you're going to be at peace on the inside. That's all in chapter 14. And at the end of chapter 14, the last verse is in verse 31, it says, and uh, he said, Jesus says, now let's go. We're going to leave this place. So they leave the upper room, which was in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, if you know anything, was up on it. I mean, if you know anything, that sounds rude, huh? <laughs> You may not be aware, but Jerusalem was up on a hill. And they were heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on another hill. So when you leave one hill, you have to go down, through a valley, and then up again. 
You with me so far? So they were going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they left Jerusalem, and they had to go down through a valley. And as they were walking, they were walking through the vineyards of Jerusalem. The vineyards. And Jesus sees the vineyards. And he goes, ah, object lesson. I don't know if that's how he said it, but that's what we see here. And that's where we get John chapter 15. Jesus is giving his disciples on the way to Gethsemane an object lesson where he says, I'm the vine. My father is the vine keeper. Every branch that stays connected to me is going to bear fruit. But if you don't, if you disconnect from me, you're not going to bear fruit. So you've got to stay connected to me, guys. I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be here physically anymore, I'm, but I'm going to be with you. But you've got to stay connected to me. And he goes on and he talks about bearing fruit and staying connected. John chapter 15. Then at the end of that object lesson, he says in verse 11, I have told you all of these things. Remember this conversation. I've told you all of these things, you know, things about serving, about loving, about heaven, about how you can always pray, about the Holy Spirit, about the gift of peace, about bearing fruit. This is all one conversation. He says, I have told you all of this so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, joy will overflow. Now, friends, all of that is called context. Context. Who is he talking to? Why is he saying it? He's saying it to his disciples to give them encouragement. Encouragement. Now, knowing the context, what do you think the odds are that, you know, that Jesus meant, you know, especially when he's trying to give encouraging words to his disciples who are soon to be without him, who he knows, Jesus knows they're going to be discouraged, distraught, overwhelmed with fear. Knowing that Jesus loves them the, the way he does. He wants to encourage them. What do you think the odds are he would say something like, you guys, listen, if, if, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off from me. You're going to lose your salvation and you're going to burn in hell. Now I've said this, I've said this that your joy may be full. Do you think Jesus meant that? No, that's stupid. It makes no sense at all. The context that we went through totally disproves that idea of that he's talking about hell. There's no way in hell he's talking about hell. He said, I've said this, that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Do you think it would be joyful to say, oh, by the way, I'm leaving, and if you don't stay connected to me, you're going to hell? Does that, like, bring up emotions of joy in anybody? And you're going to burn because it's fire. It's fiery down there. You're going to burn for eternity, and you're going to be cut off. Does anybody go, man, I'm so joyful? That's not at all what he's talking about there. And as we get into it, you're going to see what this means. Context, listen, the context makes that interpretation not an accurate one. So the first thing you've got to look at is the verses before and the verses after. What does it mean? You with me? Okay, just checking. The second principle of interpretation is this. You've got to define the key words. Define the key words. If you want to know the correct meaning of a Bible verse, you've got to make sure you understand what those words mean. Not what you 
think it means. Just because it means something somewhere else doesn't mean it means that in that particular passage. You can't just assume you know the meaning of a word because we learned last week that words have multiple meanings, right? If I, for example, if I use the word swing, swing, what comes up in your mind's eye? Is it, you know, a swing out, like out in our playground in the back? See, I, I, you don't know this, but I might be talking about what I do with a golf club, right? Same word, two different meanings. But context determines what it means. You can even use the same words in the same sentence, and it means two different things, like that song was the bomb, but when she sang it, she bombed. Same words, two different meanings. It means the exact opposite thing in the same sentence. So words have multiple meanings, doesn't it? So when you look at a verse in the Bible, you see a word, you can't automatically assume. You can't automatically assume fire must mean hell. You can't. Not necessarily. In this passage, John 15, uh, the word love is in there nine times, used nine times. The, words, the word fruit is used nine times in 17 verses. Most of us today would think, okay, listen, I know, I know what love is. I get it. I understand the meaning of love. But what is fruit? If I'm called to be fruitful, if I'm called to be fruitful, and if God expects me to bear fruit in my life, it's important. Jesus said it. I better know what it means. So what is this fruit in which he speaks of? If he says, this is what brings glory to God, then I better know what fruit is. I better know. Now, some may say, hey, listen, PG, I know what fruit is. Fruit of the Spirit. Learned it on the flannel graph, Sunday school. Right? Anybody memorize the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, patience, peace, gentleness, goodness, self, uh, faithfulness, uh, meekness, kindness, self-control. But fruit doesn't automatically mean those things. You see, the word fruit is used 44 times in the New Testament. 44 times. And it has at least 10 different meanings. Let me just give you a few. To, uh, it, it, you just can't automatically assume you know what a word means. For instance, Matthew 3.8, the word fruit is used for the fruit of repentance. Romans 7.5 talks about we bore fruit for death. He's talking about a sinful lifestyle. Romans 15.8, we receive this fruit. Here, he's talking about an offering like money as a gift. Galatians 5.22, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That's the nine godly attitudes I just rattled off. Colossians 1.6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. He's talking about seeing new believers come to Jesus. Hebrews 13.5, it talks about praise to God, the fruit of our lips. It's when we praise and lift up the name of the Lord. That's fruit. So you see, if God says, I'm to bear fruit, and in John 15, Jesus is saying, this is so important, guess what? We better understand we better know what fruit means. What does it mean? What is Jesus talking about when he says we must bear fruit in this context? This brings up the third principle of interpretation. We need to interpret unclear verses with clear ones, correlation. We need to interpret unclear verses with clear ones. In this passage we read in John 15, there are three characteristics of fruit. Three characteristics. 
what it means to grow spiritual fruit. We find them in verse 4, verse 8, and verse 11. It's all on your sheet on the back of your notes. What are the three characteristics of fruit? Quickly, verse 4. The first one is remain in me and I will remain in you. Again, remain means to be connected, to abide, uh, to connect, to last. It, it means to be connected. That, uh, it's a branch that, you know, a branch that's disconnected from a tree is not going to bear any fruit. That's all he's saying. Be connected to me and I'll connect to you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So the first thing we'd write down, if we're doing this Bible study, the first thing we'd write down as an observation, here's what we would write down. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Now for all of us, 180 people that are in a 40 days you know, small group, you know that we are in the paraphrase it part of Bible study methods. And that's what we're doing here, paraphrasing what we just read. Bearing fruit is produced in remaining in Christ. That's not an exaggeration. That's not me stretching it or reading into the text. It's a very clear verse. It says what it says. He says it three times, remain in me and you're going to bear fruit. You don't remain in me, you're not going to do anything. You can't do anything. So the first thing we learn is that bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. What does that mean? It means this. Fruit is an inside job. Fruit's an inside job. You can't accessorize your life and pretend like you're bearing fruit. That would be like taking a barren tree with no leaves, no fruit on it, and, you know, you're, you're taking apples or plums or pears, whatever your favorite fruit tree is, and you're tying them on this barren tree and calling it fruitful. And I think a lot of Christians do that. I think a lot of Christians do this. We, we accessorize our life with Christ. We, we, we try to tie on good works and then claim we're being fruitful. You're not being fruitful. You're just doing stuff. It's got to come from within, compelled by Christ in our life. It's got to come from within. Fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Verse 8, the second one, says this, When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. So the second thing we would write down, again, observation, it's obvious, bearing fruit brings glory to God. So bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. The second thing is bearing fruit brings glory to God. How do we know that? Because that's what the verse says. I'm not making it up. I'm not misinterpreting, uh, misinterpreting it. It says that when I bear fruit, it brings glory to God. So we'd write that down. See, it's, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Then it says bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. It brings glory to God. Then in verse 11, the third one, we get the third characteristic. I have told you these sayings, Jesus said, so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Jesus tells us his motivation, his motive for talking about bearing fruit is joy. Joy. So we'd write this down. Bearing fruit will give me complete joy. He says that, so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Bearing fruit, whatever it is, it's produced by remaining in Christ, bringing glory to God, and it's to give me great and complete joy. 
Now, some of you may be going, okay, I'm with you so far, PG. This is getting interesting because I want to know what fruit is because I want that joyful. I want that overwhelming joy in my life, that complete joy. So we learn three things about it. But some of us may be still stuck on the question, what exactly is fruit? What exactly is fruit? I know how it's, you know, bared, barred? I don't know, not an English major. Bearing fruit will give me complete joy, brings glory to God. And it's produced by remaining in Christ. But we're still stuck on what is fruit? What is the fruit? If I'm supposed to bear fruit, we need to figure out what fruit is. How do we do that? Then we go to the fourth principle of interpretation. Again, I alluded to this a minute ago. We look at the obvious meaning. The obvious meaning. Look at the most obvious meaning in the text. This is, this is the exact opposite what of a lot of what a lot of people want to do today. We don't want to look at the obvious meaning. We want to go and find some deep meaning, right? We want, we want to find some hidden secret. We want... You know, we want to find some hidden secret meaning in the Bible. But here, I'm, t- I'm here to tell you, if you go looking for some secret, hidden, mysterious, uh, mysterious you know, meaning, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss what God wants to obviously show you. Because the Bible isn't full of secrets. Did you catch that? The Bible doesn't, it's not full of secrets. I mean, all of these history, I don't know if you, I I watch the History Channel and the Discovery Channel on purpose. I don't know if you do, but at some point, around Easter, they always run these shows like Hidden Secrets of the Bible, The Mystery of the Bible Revealed. You ever seen those or heard about those shows? But they're wrong. They're wrong. There are no secrets in the Bible. Everything in God's Word is right up front. Why would God put secrets in the Bible? The purpose of the Bible is to reveal God, not conceal God. Why would God give us the Bible and tell us what He's taught or what tell us what He's like and how much He loves us and then hide it from us? This is stupid. The purpose of the Bible is not to conceal. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal God. But you just have to find it. It's obvious if you just look for it and know how to look for it. There's no secret formula. There's no hidden message. God doesn't play hide-and-seek with us. He gave the Bible to reveal Himself, not to conceal Himself. So anytime you find someone saying, I got the secret meaning of this passage and the secret meaning of this verse, they're probably making it up. Because God, for 2,000 years has been speaking to his body, the church. Because if it's truth, and we learned this in week one, if it's truth, it's been around forever and ever. And thousands of people have seen it before me, and thousands of people are going to see it after me. You look for the obvious meaning. Here's another thing. And please don't do this. Don't try to make every detail mean something. Don't. When there's a story in the Bible, every detail doesn't have some deep spiritual meaning. It's just part of the story. Don't try to make every detail mean something. A lot of Jesus' stories are, are what we call parables. 
And, the, and a parable is a story with one point to it. Not five, not ten, not twenty. It has one point to it. It's, for example, let's say, you know, I wrote you a letter and I said, hey, I bought my daughter Madison a red car. I bought, my, I bought a red car for my daughter Madison. And then I sent you that letter. And a thousand years from today in another language, language somebody's reading the book of Georgentians and they take that letter. <laughs> they take that letter and do what some Bible scholars do today. What do they do? They tear that verse apart and they get all kinds of meanings out of that verse that just aren't there. They'd say something like, you know, when George spoke about the red car, it's obvious, you know, that red means hell because, you know, as a man, if I was driving a red car down the freeway at high speeds, that's what I would catch by the, you know, highway patrolman. I'll let you figure that one out. So, you know, George must be talking about hell. And then, then the color red, man, he must be talking about the deepest part, the hottest part of hell. And car, you know, this is how you get from one place to another. So what George is really saying here is that you're going to go to hell in a red car. No, that's not what I'm saying. It just meant that I bought my daughter a red car. It just meant I bought my daughter a car. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of deep preaching isn't deep preaching at all. They're trying to find stuff that just isn't there. What they should have said is, George really loves his daughter Madison, and he loves her enough to know what she really needs. And so he can afford it, and he bought her a car. I didn't buy her a car because I can't afford it. No, I'm just kidding. I had to make that because my daughter said, so when am I getting my new car after first service? <laughs> That's the point. I just bought my daughter a car. You can see how people can take that and make something out of every single detail. So don't try to find, dissect every detail. That's what people do when they you know, start saying, this branch means this, and this fire means this. And, you know, first of all, the word fire is, is the translation from the Greek word per, P-U-R. You know what per means in Greek? Fire. It doesn't mean hell. It means fire. That's all he's talking about. He's talking about a literal fire. What is obvious about verse 6, remember the problem verse? Let me read it again. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. The point, remember, he's walking through with his disciples. He's walking through a, a, a vineyard, and he, here's the point. A fruitless tree has lost its purpose. This is the point. Does that make sense? The purpose of a fruit tree is to bear fruit. That's the purpose of a fruit tree, to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, it's not fulfilling its purpose. So he says, what good is a fruitless fruit tree? Nothing, unless you use it for firewood. That's what he's talking about. He's simply saying this, a fruitless tree 
can't fulfill his purpose. He's not talking about going to hell. He certainly wouldn't be talking about going to hell saying, hey, listen, I said all of these things to bring you joy. It just doesn't reconcile. It's when you take it out of context is the problem. A text without context is pretext. In other words, it's an excuse just to make up anything you want. So what do you do? You let the text speak for itself. And when you let the text speak for, your, it for itself, the meaning becomes obvious. When you let the text speak for itself, it's very clear what the meaning of fruit is. And I'm going to show it to you. Because I know you've all been wondering what the, what the fruit means. So let's go back to the text and look at three things. Verse 7 in chapter 15. It says this, But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, see, we've heard that before, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. What's he talking about? He's talking about prayer. Prayer. So what would we write down? Remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. That's no stretch of the verse. I didn't dig deep. I didn't expound on it. Expand or expound? Whatevs. It's just what the verse says. Remaining in Christ, being connected to Christ, produces answered prayer. Have you ever thought about the fact that prayer can do anything that God can do? It's true. Prayer can do anything that God can do. So why do we pray these little prayers? I've heard this, you know, uh, you know why do we ask him for tiny prayers? I heard it quoted this way. We can't expect a $1,000 answer to a 10-cent prayer. But we do. It says, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. Now, you say, wait a minute, PG. I've asked for a lot of things throughout my life, and it wasn't granted. I didn't get it. Let me, encur- let me encourage you with this. If God doesn't give you what you ask for, it will always be something better. Be encouraged by that. God will never give you something worse than what you've asked for. Maybe you don't think it's better, but God knows better. And He is God and you are not. So when you pray, don't ask God for what you think is good for you. Say, God, I want you to give me what you think is best for me. Because you know what I need more than I do. So the first point here is remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. The second thing, 14, 13, chapter 14. Remember, it's the same conversation. We're all digging. We're all into the same conversation. Same 11 guys. 13 says, you can ask for anything in my name. There's that phrase again. And I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. What's the second thing we learn and we write down? Answered prayer, so remaining in Christ, produces answered prayer. And answered prayer brings glory to God. He says, when you ask for something in my name, I give it to you and it brings glory to my Father. And that's good. So when when we ask for things, and God gives it to us, it brings God glory, and it shows how loving God is. What do you need to be asking God for in your life? What are the things you need? 
are, you know, some of you are going through some turbulent times right now. Some of you are on shaky ground right now. And when you're on unstable ground, you need to kneel. When you're swept off your feet because of the storms of life, they come through and blow you off your feet, you need to kneel. Because here's what I've learned. Because you can't fall when you're already on your knees. Jesus said, ask anything in my name, it will bring glory to God. And it will cause you to remain connected to me. And then in verse, uh, in, in another verse, chapter 16, verse 24, same conversation, same group of guys, Jesus says this, you haven't done this before. Ask using my name. There's that phrase again. You haven't asked for anything in my name. And you will receive and you will have abundant joy. Your joy will be complete. Yeah, when he talks about bearing fruit. So listen, we write this down, the third thing. Answered prayer gives me complete joy. Super obvious. Did you know that over 20 times in the New Testament, we are commanded to ask? It says, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. James says this, which you're familiar with. You have not because you ask not. See, God never shuts his storehouse until we shut our mouth. One day you're going to get to heaven, and I, I think in that, you know, however it plays out, God, hey, listen, here's everything you missed out on because you didn't ask for it in my name. Here's all the blessings you missed out on. Here's all the experiences you missed out on because you didn't ask for it in my name. You could, you're going to see all of these things that you could have asked for, but you didn't ask for it in my name. The Bible says, you have not because you ask not. Now, Jesus is in his final words to his disciples. He said, I'm not going to be here with you anymore, but you can still talk to me because of prayer. You can ask, and, and, uh, and I'll give it to you. And when I do, it's going to produce answered prayers. Remaining in Christ is going to bring glory to God, and answered prayers will bring you joy. But listen, remember, and here's the truth. When you don't pray, you're not cheating God. When you don't pray, you are cheating yourself. You're missing out. You're missing out on some things that God may want to reveal to you or give you or bless you with. When you don't pray, you don't hurt God. You're only cheating yourself out of the fruit that God wants you to produce in your life. Are you seeing the connection here? Are you, are you making the connection? Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Walk with me here. Bearing fruit brings glory to God. Bearing fruit gives me complete joy. And answered prayers comes from remaining in Christ. Answer, answered prayer brings glory to God. And answered prayer gives me complete joy. You see what we're doing here? And just in case you miss, uh, missed it, Jesus mentions it one more time in verse 16. He says, and he ends his talk with this one last mention. He said this, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. Lasting fruit. What's the first thing he talks about after he talks about fruit? Prayer. Prayer. He said, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. That's prayer. So there it is. There it is. Looking at the word, looking at the context, letting the text speak for itself, writing down the obvious. We would write this down. I bear fruit by asking in prayer. That's what he's talking about. 
He's not talking about losing your salvation because you didn't win somebody to Christ. He's talking about fruit comes through prayer. Prayer is the root of all fruit. All of the other uh, virtues in life come through prayer. Gentleness, goodness, faithful, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, self-control come through prayer. Prayer is the pathway to everything God wants to do in your life. Prayer. You know what the problem is? I think a majority of us treat prayer like a last resort. In fact, we say, you know, you get to that place in life going, oh, all we can do now is what? We treat prayer as a last resort. We treat prayer like our last line of defense. But that's wrong. We need to treat prayer as our first line of offense. It's where you get all the fruit from in your life. Much prayer, much fruit. Little prayer, little fruit. No prayer, no fruit. You're just tying on apples to a barren tree. Every, everything comes through prayer. That's what Jesus is saying. The more I pray, the more fruit I'm going to have. The more fruit I'm going to have, the more prayer I'm going to give, and the more fruit I'm going to have after that. And, and this is another problem that we see. I think a lot of people have trouble praying when they're not in trouble. We don't have any trouble praying when we're actually in trouble. We have trouble praying when we're not in trouble. When things are going good, we're saying, ah, I don't need to pray. Things are good. Neglecting to pray is acting like you don't have a heavenly father who loves you. He's saying, the way you bear fruit is by praying. And the more you pray, the more fruit you're going to have in your life. Everything God does, He does because you ask Him to do it in your life. Listen, we know a Bible study is not a Bible study unless you get to what, um, you know, to, to that question, uh, what am I going to do about this? What, what difference am, is this going to make in my life? What am I going to do about this part? See, that's personal application. And if you notice in Matthew 7, 24, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does what? Say it with me. Puts them into practice. Is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So listen, if you put into practice what I've learned, if you say, I'm going to put into practice what I learned today. You're saying, I built my house on the rock, and when the storms of life come, it's going to stand. If I don't put it into practice what I heard today, I just come to the Bible study, I come to church, I listen to the sermon, I take notes and I go home and I forget it. It says, you are a fool. Not my words. The Bible says the foolish man builds his house on sand. He hears it, but he doesn't do anything about it. And you know the problem today? People all over America are listening to sermons this morning on the internet, TV, the radio. They're listening to all these sermons and they have zero intention of doing anything about it. None. The Bible calls that foolish. I hear people say all the time, this is deep preaching, you know, that's why I watch, or that's deep preaching, and 
You know, this guy talks about deep prophecy and what's to come. And, you know, this is deep preaching. And I, PG, I really want deep preaching. They think deep preaching means explaining the biblical history of the Jebusites. No. Here's what deep preaching is. If you're taking notes, write this down. The deepest preaching is the preaching that changes your character. The deepest preaching is the preaching that changes your behavior. The deepest preaching is the preaching that changes your attitude. You could fill your mind with every Bible fact and every Bible background and every, every you know, Bible knowledge. You can know all the doctrine in the entire Bible, but if you're still an angry elf and you gossip and you treat your kids poorly, you treat your wife poorly, you treat your husband poorly, and you swear and you're filling your mind with pornography on the computer and you're watching TV and you're, uh, and, and you're filling your mind with you know, shows that are eating you alive from the inside and you're still impatient, you haven't gotten deep. Deep has nothing to do with Bible background. It all has to do with Bible application. That's why I want to see Creekside Church to be, I want to see us be a Bible application church. For every sermon in this church, uh, you know, needs to be about what am I going to do about that? Because I, we, we get extremely practical. And we always come to a point of commitment. What am I going to do next? What PG gave me three things I can grab onto and hang my heart on that I can apply to my life today. What am I going to do about that? What is your next step? Here are five things. We're practical. Why do I do this? Because I love you too much as a pastor to let you just hear knowledge. I love you too much to let you just hear knowledge. And then go home and do nothing about what you heard. The Bible says that is foolish. And I love you too much to let you show up week after week to get a big head, a numb butt, and a tiny heart. If you just go to church so you can learn the Greek for this and the Latin for that, you know, or the biblical background for this, of, you know, or maybe you know, the history of who the Amorites are, and, and then you go home thinking, whoa, that was deep. PG was on one today. It's not deep. It's not deep if it doesn't change your life. Not if you don't treat your wife any better. Not if you, you know, you don't treat your husband any better. Not if you're not more ethical at work. Not if you don't live a life of integrity. Not if you don't start winning victory over that lust in your life. No, it's, it's not deep. It's not deep at all. The deepest part of any sermon, of any message, the deepest part is the part that changes you. That changes you. I'm going to invite my friend Jake up. Listen, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a wise man.
puts them into practice. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do anything about it, they're foolish. So that's why the last thing we need to hear or we need to do here is we don't need to talk about prayer. We need to be about it. We need to pray. We need to pray. That's why the last thing I want you to do, uh, you do, uh, do, do, the last thing I want you to do today is I want you to write out an application. One sentence of, what am I going to do about this week? What am I going to pray about this week? What am I going to pray about so that I will bear fruit? You need to, you need to bear fruit. And you may, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Where, where do you need to bear fruit? Do you need to bear more fruit in your finances? Do you need to bear more fruit in your relationships, in your marriage? Do you need a little more fruit in your health? Do you need some little, you know, a little more fruit in your friendships or in your job or, or young people in your, your education? Where do you need to bear more fruit? Jesus tells us, ask. He says, ask ask. The Bible tells us you have not because you ask not. So again, I'm going back to Matthew chapter 7 verse 24, which is our memory verse for this week, because I want you to be a wise person. I want you to bear fruit. Remember, we say the reference before we say the verse, and we say the reference after. And also remember, you don't learn the Bible. You don't memorize it by reading it. You memorize it by what? Saying it out loud. So let's say this together. Ready? Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew 7, 24. Good job. I want you to work on that verse this week because if you hide his word in your heart, you're going to have the power to change. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've created us to bear fruit. Thank you, Father God, that you do not want our lives to be barren and you don't want our relationships to be barren. And Father, you don't want our emotions to be barren. You want our lives to bear much fruit. And I thank you that you created a way through prayer that we can talk to you. We're privileged to have that. Father, the fact that you, the creator of this world, would take time to listen, much less answer my prayers, means so much to me. Thank you that you want me to be filled with joy. And thank you that you said these wonderful words. And Father, I pray for forgiveness. Forgive us for our lack of prayer. Forgive us for not praying more. Forgive us for treating prayer like a last resort. That we use it when we only get in trouble instead of using it to guide our lives and give you praise. Thank you, Father, for this tremendous gift that you have given us in prayer. And I pray for Creekside Church. I pray that we are a church full of fruit bearers. Men and women who are bearing fruit in their jobs. Men and women who are bearing fruit in their lives, in their families. Men and women who are uh, bearing fruit in every area of their life through answered prayer. And Father, I pray that you help us to pray more, that we may see more fruit in our lives. Now, with every head bowed, I want to ask you, if you've never invited Christ into your life, 
or you feel that you're at a moment now where you're feeling pretty barren and you need to recommit your life to Christ, I want you to pray this with me. You don't have to say it out loud, but just agree with me in prayer. Say, Jesus Christ, come into my life right now as Lord and save me and change me. I want to be a fruitful person. I want my life not to be uh, barren. I want my life to count, Father God, for your kingdom. Father, teach me to pray. Teach me to trust you and love you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth that God raised you from the dead and you are my Lord and I commit my life to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. And the church said... Oh, 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 oh,